kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Neighbors, released December 18th, 1981. It was written by Larry Gelbart, based on a novel by Thomas Berger, directed by John G. Avildsen, and released by Columbia Pictures. And there's probably a couple uncredited uh, writers there of Dan Aykroyd and... Uh, and John Belushi here. Thomas Berger's novel Neighbors was published in 1980 and was instantly the target of a bidding war between Jaws producers Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown against Rocky director John G. Avildsen and super agent Swifty Lazar. To avoid a prolonged and expensive contest, they decided to join forces with Zanuck and Brown producing, Avildsen directing, and Lazar credited as executive producer, his first such credit. Do you remember the last time we brought up Swifty Lazar? It's, I can think of three times so far that we've <laughs> brought him up. What was the most recent? I don't know the most recent. I can only think of the one. Don't look at me. No idea. What's, what's the one I'm, you got? I'm thinking of History of the World. Swiftest Lazarus? Yeah. yeah. Um, there was that and there was Mirror Cracked before that, but we've done one since that. Larry Gelbart, creator and developer of the MASH TV series, was attached to adapt the novel into a screenplay. Zanuck and Brown had a deal with 20th Century Fox, but studio head Sherry Lansing did not see the comedy in the story, and the eventual first draft from Gelbart didn't change her mind. I'm with Sherry. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> the project floated to Columbia, who greenlit the adaptation with a $10 million budget, forcing Zanuck and Brown to abandon their hopes of casting A-lister comedians Gene Wilder and Steve Martin. The unexpected success of John Landis's Blues Brothers meant the SNL alums Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi were now big enough to hang a film on, and they'd cost a fraction of Wilder and Martin's rate. Gilda Radner was pursued to play one of the female leads, but turned it down to do Hanky Panky with future husband Gene Wilder, playing a part originally written for Richard Pryor. She was playing the part written for Richard Pryor. Oh. He stepped away from the movie, and then they rewrote it to be a okay. love interest instead of a buddy comedy. Despite their shared SNL origins, Aykroyd and Belushi had clashed with Radner in the past on account of Radner's comedy film, Guild Alive, shooting simultaneously with Blues Brothers and forcing Paul Schaefer to choose between the projects, resulting in him being ejected from the Blues Brothers band. Neighbors had a notoriously troubled production, thanks largely to Belushi's return to heavy cocaine use after abstaining during the filming of Continental Divide earlier this season. At Avildsen's suggestion to avoid being forever typecast as his frat boy Bluto character, Belushi and Aykroyd agreed to swap roles during pre-production to give Belushi a turn as straight man. But that was just the first of many adjustments the stars would make to Gelbart's script, which was in such a constant state of flux that Belushi and Aykroyd were accused of by Gelbart and investigated for rewriting during the 1980 writer's strike. Ultimately, Aykroyd admitted to improvising jokes on set, which is considered scabbing now, but... WGA chair Jeff Freelich concluded that it was not Aykroyd's intent to weaken the strike and clauses forbidding this kind of ad-lib rewriting on set were implemented in future WGA agreements. So it was technically allowed at the time and it was clear he wasn't trying to scab, but that's technically writing. So you can't improvise? 
Not during like, a strike. Not during a strike. Not during a strike. Because that would normally be the job of a writer that they would have on set that would be feeding them lines from behind the camera, even if they're improvising. I'm curious how that would work for like a Christopher Guest type film. Right. That, I mean, that kind of a movie, you can't well, do it during, because yeah, that's would, all right. Just don't film it during a strike. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> In retaliation, at the peak of his cocaine intake, Belushi accused Gelbart of a drinking problem. <laughs> you showed him. <laughs> On set, both Belushi and Aykroyd battled constantly with director Avildsen, believing him incapable of directing comedy and urging the studio to cut him loose. Belushi even reached out to John Landis one night, begging him to take over the film, but Landis was already deep in the weeds on An American Werewolf in London. The Eastwood Clause is the only reason the reins weren't handed over to Aykroyd to direct himself. When the situation seemed hopeless, SNL writer Jim Downey has claimed that Belushi even looked into hiring a hitman to kill the director what? so they could move forward with someone else. Anyone else. Wow. <laughs> Apparently he got through to a person and got a price from the person and then was so blown away by the price that he forgot that he wanted to have the director killed. He spent the whole next week going like, $5,000, can you believe it? <laughs> Wait, and, that that was low? Yeah, he thought that was super cheap to kill a person. Yeah. It's like, I yeah. spend that on blow in a week. As extra drama, Belushi and Avildsen had very different thoughts over the film's music. Originally composed by Blues Brothers band member Tom Scott, Avildsen replaced Scott with Bill Conti, with whom he'd collaborated on Rocky and several other films. And I feel like that was one of the worst, worst decisions, decisions. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of decisions that were made. <laughs> so many terrible decisions. But but that the music was one of the worst. It's yeah. almost inexcusably bad. Yeah. Belushi was deep in the punk rock scene and pushed hard for music by fear to be included in the film, but the studio sided with the director and Belushi's preference was disregarded. Belushi would later talk Lorne Michaels into booking fear as a musical guest on SNL as a consolation prize. But they got in trouble because they brought in a bunch of like punk dancers mm -hmm. who beat the crap out of each other on stage and were like bleeding during the SNL recording oh, and shouting curse words into the cameras. And it's like, yeah, this is why we didn't want yeah. to work with these people. Thorough test screenings revealed the film to be incredibly unpopular and confusing, leading to extensive rewrites and reshoots, though upon its release, the film turned a tidy profit due to the success of Blues Brothers and a brilliant strategy of opening the film super wide on an empty weekend so that the bulk of profits would be made before toxic word of mouth was spread. <laughs> they were like, let's Smart. open it everywhere <laughs> yeah. so that it's too late by the time people find out it's terrible. Berger's novel was also adapted by Eve Summer into a play in 2007. See, and that's what this it film... It should have been. It, it should have been or... Because that's what this film felt like. Yeah, a they lot don't of go times. 10 feet from the house. Yeah. If, if the sets are so close together, this should be a play and stay a play. Four months after the film's release, Belushi was discovered dead of a heroin overdose at the Chateau Marmont. His dealer, Kathy Smith, was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter for providing the actor's lethal dose and served 15 months in prison. But not the producers of this film, which drove him to it. I don't think this drove him to it. <laughs> I actually think... Sorry, it's a terrible joke. Some Paramount people drove him to it, hassling him about his next script, which was admittedly terrible. But that's another story for another day. The opening titles play out over black with just Conti's Be It Ever So Humble infused score. <laughs> And this is like straight Looney Tunes. Yeah. Like, it feels like it should be a cartoon soundtrack. And yeah. I don't feel like the movie is cartoony enough to fit the score that they went with. And then we flash to two houses on a cul-de-sac with a power line backdrop. The house on the left has wood shingles 
and the one on the right has white vinyl siding, and both sport a pair of attic windows to resemble the eyes of the house. The street is actually paved in a traffic circle for some reason. Like, it's not a regular mm -hmm. cul-de-sac. There's, like, a circle of grass in the middle. As the camera cranes down to the street, an AMC Hornet Sportabout rolls down the street and parks beside the siding house. John Belushi and Catherine Walker as Earl and Enid Keese climb out looking tired. Inside the home, Earl channel surfs while Enid reads the paper, and some of the voices emanating from the screen are clearly Aykroyd's. Enid steps into the kitchen to fix dinner, and Earl is distracted by the sound of car doors slamming outside. Parked outside the opposite house, he sees a Ford Ranchero Squire with a U-Haul trailer attached. Enid! Someone's moving into the Warren place! So? He's relieved they don't appear to have children. He proposes inviting them over for a drink. Outside, Earl catches the neighbor's dog peeing in their bushes. Earl is preemptively worried the pet will disturb his garden. The doorbell rings and Earl opens it a crack to find Kathy Moriarty as his new neighbor Ramona with Morticia Adams lighting across just her eyes. She flirts a bit while introducing herself and then walks right in, uninvited. Ramona finds a framed photo of Earl's daughter Elaine and then picks up the remote to turn off the TV and we realize the sultry saxophone music that accompanied her entrance was actually coming from the television. Now, if this had continued... Right. Like, yeah. if that, that was like, oh... I was like, okay, that makes the music a little less obnoxious, knowing yeah. now that it came from the TV and yeah. it was part of a gag. It's like, but nope, it, that's the only nope. time. Yep. She takes a seat on the couch just as Earl introduces himself and tries to collect Enid from the kitchen, but Ramona pins him down by throwing her legs over his lap. He invites her and any potential Mr. Ramona to stay for dinner, and she suggests that he get his wife's blessing first. It's no problem, really. Don't argue with me, you wouldn't want me to have to pull down your pants and spank your little buns now, would you? In the kitchen, he finds Enid stabbing a block of frozen waffles to shreds. He's disappointed to learn they don't have a suitable meal to entertain guests with, but when he returns to the living room, Ramona is gone, and the TV is tuned to a horror film with a woman screaming in a theater. This is actually a clip from William Castle's The Tingler, which we've referenced in our review of Polyester because John Waters' Odorama was inspired by Castle's infamous gimmicks, and Waters used to seek out the specially wired chair at screenings of The Tingler, which was activated by various prompts in the film. So when the alien wandered out into the theater on screen, one chair would shake mm. in the theater, and, and Waters was usually sitting in it. He suddenly notices a man sitting in the room watching the TV with him, and he introduces himself as Vic. This is Ramona's husband, played by Dan Aykroyd. Vic has apparently heard through the grapevine about the offered meal and admits to a disturbing hunger. What's on the menu, pal? I'm starved. Ah, Ramona and I haven't eaten all day. We could eat a baby's butt through a park bench. What the fuck? <laughs> what does that mean? What the fuck? Earl starts to apologize about the lack of food, but Vic offers to pick up some takeout if Earl is paying. Earl gives him three tens and a two, but Vic doesn't think that'll do it. Vic distractedly pulls down from Earl's bookshelf a copy of William Shirer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich with a big swastika on the spine. Yeah, I, I feel like... There, there's a couple Nazi hints in this film. Well, there, there's that, but there's also just, like, I get having a book about the history of the I Reich. I feel like in the early 80s, everybody had, yeah. like, World War II books specifically. Right, right. But this book, at a glance doesn't appear to be a World War II history book. It's, yeah. a, it's a pretty it, famous one, though, actually. Is it? Okay, because yeah. like, I was like, what? Yeah, because as soon as I saw it, I was like, I honestly, my first thought was, I've seen this book before. Mm. I don't know where, but I've definitely seen this book before, and I looked it up, and it's 
it's one of the like best known rise and fall of the of the nazis books earl can't imagine where vic intends to find food around here but he says he found a new place that just opened up but it's got a cute name caesar's garlic wars a turn on julius caesar's historic gallic wars Earl knows the neighborhood and never saw such a place, but backs off on the point when Vic appears offended to be second-guessed on the matter. And I read the book, and I liked in the book that he pointed out, like, there's no way he came up with that joke off the top of his head, so it must really exist. Yeah. <laughs> Vic says his brakes are out and asks to borrow Earl's car for the drive. Earl heads upstairs to get his car keys and in his bedroom finds Ramona naked under the covers of his bed. She claims that she had to use their bath because there's a dead rat in her and Vic's bathtub. She leans up in bed, revealing her breasts to him with an inexplicable theremin chirp on the soundtrack. <laughs> they make so many weird musical hints that these people are aliens. Well, well, I mean, yeah, I was going to save that. Maybe they the, are. I don't know. I, I was going to save it to the to the end. But yeah, I, I have a, a theory. I mean, the, the most blatant alien hint is the fact that, as we were discussing before the record, that Dan Aykroyd was born with heterochromia. Mm-hmm. And that he has two eyes that are two different colors. And so he's wearing bright blue contact lenses, but in such a way that they're causing his pupils to dilate beyond like a regular size. So he looks completely fucking crazy every Mm -hmm. time the camera is just on his eyes. Earl creeps out of the room and finds Vic going through papers in his office desk. Vic claims he just needed paper to write the order down. Earl hands over the keys and Vic slips out the door. He tells Enid he sent the neighbors out for food. So she says she's going to change, and Earl blocks her path so she doesn't find the naked woman in her bed. Let her find this lady, though. (laughs) I don't know why she's there. She says she had to use our bath. That makes as little sense to me as it should to you. (laughs) That's not not me in trouble. Earl watches Vic park the car at the house across the street. Earl sneaks outside and catches Enid tossing the steak from the fridge to the neighbor's dog to eat. I'm confused about this, because didn't she say she didn't have steak? Yeah. Yeah. So where is this steak coming from? She had it. She had it, but she didn't want to cook it for him. Like I, I don't understand. So many things the here. The Enid seem character arbitrary. is the worst written nonsense character in the story. None but of them seem to have clear motivations. Though. It seems like everyone's motivation is just to do whatever emasculates and frustrates Earl the most. And in this case, it's you. You liked a thing. Well, guess what? I threw that thing to a thing you didn't like, and the thing you don't like ate the thing that you like. Yeah, that's weird. Earl crawls up to Vic's house when he hears music playing inside and finds the man making the food he claimed he would go pick up. But he drops a handful of noodles on the dirty floor and then scoops them back into the pot. Or some of them. Like, just yeah. a couple of them. Next, They're he moves... going to get boiled again anyway. Yeah, I for mean. sure. Yeah, everything's safe. Next, he moves to investigate Vic's car and he finds an RC plane in the back with a miniature doll of Vic in the pilot seat. I think it's supposed to be Vic. He tests the brakes to see if Vic was lying, but he wasn't. And Earl accidentally sends the car down the driveway and through some bushes into a swampy marsh. He looks vaguely remorseful and then notices Ramona ringing his doorbell in the background. Ramona tells Enid she needs to borrow the phone to report their car stolen. Ramona says their baby was in the backseat, and Enid doesn't bat an eye at this detail. Your car was stolen with a baby in the backseat? <laughs> but Earl freaks out until he crosses paths with Vic in the yard, who explains that they call the dog baby and don't have kids. And also that he just saw the dog. So the dog is not in the car either. Enid burns the waffles. And as they enter the room together, Earl learns that apparently Vic and his wife were acquainted hours ago. She tells Vic that she's willing to watch their dog baby anytime. Well, I want him to have every advantage I was denied as a young dog. This was actually the only line that I laughed at. (laughs) 
the every advantage I was denied as a young dog, mm. and it's 100% from the book, word for word. Vic and Enid set the table, and Earl is sent to find Ramona. Weirdly, he finds her on the porch, and she admits that she saw what he did to the car. She suggests 1500 as reimbursement. He seems surprised at the price, but realizes that she's blackmailing him for silence. At the dinner table, Ramona makes a lot of jokes about measuring balls, and Enid and Vic find the jokes very funny, but their laughter feels as forced as it would have to be because none of this is especially funny. Earl basically calls Vic a liar about where he got the food, so he changes his story to a second shop. Then Earl calls him out again based on all the phony details of the second story, and Vic finally admits the truth, that he made all this food. But he doesn't, like, give him the $32 back. No. He tries to make it sound generous of him, but he took Earl's money and pretended to pay for this. To keep the honesty flowing, Ramona prompts Earl to admit his own secret, but he doesn't seem willing to. Enid asks Ramona to share the secret, but she doesn't mention the car... He tried to pork me. Pork you? What? Vic says they'll have to leave in light of this revelation. After they go, Earl complains about her not mentioning having met Vic earlier and for staring at his unit during dinner, which we didn't even get an insert to imply that was happening. Mm -hmm. Then he asks why she fed the dog all the steak, and she says Vic told her to take care of his dog, even though he never left the cul-de-sac and the dog didn't need taking care of. Feed him burnt waffles. It's a dog. (laughs) Suddenly, the glow of arcing electricity pours in through the blinds, and they can hear the neighbors wrestling with the dog near the power lines. By the time they get outside, Baby is fluffy and glowing. Apparently, the dog peed on the transmission tower and got zapped. Vic checks the dog out, and Baby seems fine, and then a crow lands on the same power line and drops to the ground, electrocuted and smoldering. Vic says everything they said at dinner was a hilarious joke, and Earl shares another joke, that he sank their truck in the swamp off the driveway, which... They keep calling it a truck. Yeah. I would have called this a car, but they keep calling it a truck. Well, because it's like a like a Pinto-type car, yeah. right? I mean, Together, the two men march into the marsh. Earl says it used to be a lake, but a chemical plant dumping their runoff into the water caused it to start growing over, and a few years ago, someone actually disappeared into the swamp because, allegedly, it's quicksand. Just as Vic assures him that there is no quicksand in this part of the country, Earl sinks waist-deep in a patch of it. Vic refuses to help until Earl admits that he psychically caused Ramona to drop the towel and flash her breasts earlier. Will it to fall? Uh, no, I don't think so. Come on, Earl. Well, maybe a little. Come on. Yes! Yes! Okay, I admit it! Admit what? Yes! I will the towel to fall! Vic dips a branch under the surface and pulls Earl out. Earl yanks Vic over his shoulder into the swamp, but when he disappears into it, Earl pokes desperately into the mud with the same branch and eventually gives up and begs Vic's forgiveness. He stumbles through the yard back to the house coated in mud and peeks in a kitchen window to find the wives drinking together. He enters through a basement door to use the downstairs shower to clean up, but when he yanks open the curtain, Muddy Vic lurches out at him and the two scream back and forth for a moment until Earl forces him back out the door. He tries to lock Vic out, and the key breaks off in the lock. Later, he exits the shower wet and naked, and is surprised to find Ramona laying across the basement's pool table. God, does it always shrivel up like that when you shower? She picks up a colored glass from a shelf, and he asks her to put it back, so she lines up a shot on the pool table and launches the ball at Earl, knocking him back and sending the entire shelf of glasses crashing to the floor. Vic pops into the basement, freshly showered, and Earl locks both neighbors in the basement. 
He intends to call a locksmith and tells Enid they can leave through the side door when it's fixed. But when he calls a friend for the locksmith's number, Vic jumps on the call from a phone downstairs to interrupt the conversation with strange noises. I need the name of that locksmith you used that time. I broke a key off and I've got two lunatics locked in my basement. What? What did you say? I said blow it out your ass, wimp. There's somebody on this line. Just you and me, asshole. The bastard's on the phone. Earl surrenders the call and hangs up. Seconds later, Ramona can be heard screaming as a saw starts up in the basement, and it sounds like Vic's about to murder her. Earl is quick to diagnose this as their latest scheme, but Enid is less sure. Well, how do you know Vic isn't an escaped vivisectionist? A vivisectionist? He descends the staircase past a closet before Vic and Ramona sneak back up the stairs and lock him down there. Earl calls the local auto shop for help being broken out of the basement and a tow truck. The man is confused since he already sent his son Perry with a tow truck and the boy should have arrived by now. I sent my boy Perry out there about five minutes ago. Some fella named Vic called up. You're kidding. Earl peeks out the window and sees the tow truck is in fact here. Now the police arrive to deliver home Earl's teenage daughter, Elaine, who has apparently been kicked out of school and was illegally hitchhiking in the area. Elaine wants them to throw a party for the new neighbors. Ramona tells Earl to go to bed, and she will pop up to get him to go to sleep soon, but when he's saying his goodnights, his daughter Elaine pulls out a pair of edible panties for Vic to eat. They come in four flavors. Great idea. (laughs) Four flavors. Hey, Earl, you want some of your daughter's panties? They come in four flavors. Banana, peach, mint, and of course, cherry. Earl socks Vic in the face, and the mood comes to another screeching halt. Good night, ladies. (laughs) <laughs> this 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 mood change though did get me to laugh. It was like, <laughs> good night everybody. <laughs> yeah, he just shuts up immediately. <laughs> like this punch, I think is supposed to be a pivotal moment, like because things really kind of change after this moment. But then they change back immediately. But you also don't really see the punch. Yeah, like they they cut it and they filmed it. But to it be fair, so this strange. guy isn't super famous for directing like fight scenes or anything. What did he do before this? Like, oh, Rocky. <laughs> it's just it's just weird because I was like, oh, he barely he barely touched him. And then this becomes a really big deal that he punched him. Yeah. Everybody splits up to go to bed because it turns out it's like two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Earl takes a peek out the mail slot and finds Ramona's eyes again. She asks to be let in. Please let me in, Earl. I'll give you a kiss. Any place you like. Christ. He asks why they're torturing him. And she claims they just want to be friends before stuffing a daisy through the slot. Enid calls him upstairs, but he promises Ramona he'll be right back. I don't know why. Yeah. Earl ducks into the bathroom off the master bedroom and pulls a Kevin McAllister, burning his cheeks with aftershave. Back outside, the mechanic he called is here now to complain that the car they were asked to tow away has nothing wrong with it. Earl says he never asked them to take it, and the man socks him in the gut. Like, how dare you tell me a fact? Then he backs seemingly intentionally into the front of Earl's car to fuck it up on his way out. As Earl crosses the yard, he nudges a lawn chair and sends it flying through the air until it attaches itself to the transmission tower under the power lines. (laughs) Why does that happen? What is going on? (laughs) Suddenly, Earl finds himself in the crosshairs of Vic's sawed-off shotgun pointed down from a balcony on the roof of the wood shingle house. Vic also dons a hard hat with two flashlights attached and various pieces of scuba equipment. He fires down at the grass around Earl, who dives for cover, and then Vic comes down to check on his neighbor. He accuses Earl of looking for Ramona, but Earl says he just needs someone to talk to. They head inside Vic's house together. Earl apologizes for Vic's black eye. 
Vic explains away the helmet lights and scuba gear as an aborted attempt to find his sunken truck in the swamp. <laughs> Why did you need a shotgun for that? Yeah. Vic offers to mix up some instant coffee in a filthy mug. Earl dumps out the powder so he can clean up the mug, but Vic won't let him. Earl keeps trying to switch with Vic's clean mug and gives up the game when Vic points a gun at him again. And it's like, why did you even agree to this coffee? Why are you drinking it now? Just don't drink it. Why does he want you to drink this gross coffee so badly? Vic relays his suspicion to Earl that Elaine is on drugs. This is coming completely out of nowhere and leads to nothing. I don't know what this movie's about. I don't know anyone's goals. I don't know what we're working toward. It really feels like this is just being improvised as they go. Yeah. And they thought that it would be funnier when they did it on set, and it's not. They argue more about whatever, and then Earl leaves. Someone painted Pimp Wagon on Earl's car. Could be anybody, really. Yeah. Literally any character could have done this, and it doesn't matter because it's gone in the next scene. Right. Sometime later, Earl is in the bathroom again and finds himself locked in on the bedroom side, but there's another door on the hall, so he walks around and listens through the locked bedroom door to Ramona, Enid, and the dog inside, and he assumes that something awful is happening. Is the dog involved in whatever's happening? Between these two women and a dog? I have no idea what it's supposed to be. Two girls, one pup. Whoa. Is that what's happening? Stop. Um, I was impressed, though, that the detail of the communicating door on the hallway and off the bedroom comes from the book. (laughs) Like, they actually, like, kept that part Mm -hmm. of the floor plan intact for the story. Outside, he finds Vic cleaning the words off the car. He invites Earl to join him for breakfast and then drives away to collect it. The tow truck comes back and starts dragging Vic's truck out of the swamp. The mechanic's son lifts Earl by his bathrobe collar and threatens to beat him up for arguing with his dad yesterday, and then they leave. When Vic returns, Earl pretends the truck is fine, but when Vic taps it, it collapses. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Aykroyd and Belushi's car collapse into junk? (laughs) Go go ahead, Richard. Oh, (laughs) the Blues Brothers. That's right. Vic tells Earl to just bury it and takes his RC triplane out of the back. So even though it had been submerged. I don't think it was underwater, Okay, the, the airplane part. Even though there was quicksand there, I think the implication is that the car was only partially submerged. Because in the book, it says that the water is actually only two feet deep. So even if there were a baby in the car, it wouldn't have been underwater. You don't want your truck? You don't get it, do you? I'm moving away. Moving? Moving? What do you mean moving? You haven't been here 24 hours yet. What's wrong? No, I don't know. Why is Earl asking this man to stay? He says he's lonely and last night was the best Friday he's had in recent memory. Is that possible? This is such a weird turn that the movie takes here. He's hated him this whole time. And now he just desperately wants him to stay. But the book does the same thing. Well, if if I'm looking at it correctly, I, I think that it's he doesn't he's the type of person he doesn't want him to leave because of him. He does he doesn't want to be the bad guy. I don't think it's a guilt thing at all. I think he's literally so bored with his suburban life that he's like any change is good. But please we stay. We haven't gotten that from him. Not at all. F- mm-hmm. Up until this point in the movie. Like you needed to establish that ahead of time. And that's one thing I think the book does better because he does in his internal monologue say like 
as as upset as he was, he did appreciate that that Vic had made that point or that he was so like that that was really smart what he did and it's like oh maybe i maybe i have the wrong impression about these people maybe they're going to be great neighbors although his name isn't vic it's harry in the book no idea why they changed it vic says he's leaving anyway but ramona isn't coming nor is she his wife well whose wife is she i couldn't care less if you want her she's all yours with my compliments earl heads back to the bedroom and finds ramona who flashes him again he can't find enid and she suggests that they have sex quick before she gets back outside Vic flies his RC plane in loops and then crashes it into the power lines. Ramona lures Earl into bed by accusing him of impotency. He strips and joins her there, but he can't get it up because he's still listening to Vic and the plane outside. It stops for a second, but then Enid is calling desperately for Earl because Vic was injured in some sort of fire. He says their house is burning down and the phones are out on the whole block. Earl doesn't see any fire outside and accuses him of lying again. I don't understand this character because... Was So the only thing that was keeping him from Ramona was thinking that she was actually married to Vic? Mm-hmm. Not the fact that he himself was also married? No, like, I, th- I think Enid, like, before they made it clear that, that if, before he even knew Vic existed, when it was just Ramona, and he only thought his wife would find out about it, he was refusing to get into bed with her. Why is it suddenly changed now? I don't know. Because she said, oh, you're not going to get into bed with me? What you're you're not you're you're not gonna have sex with me? And he's like, fine, then I will. Yeah, it doesn't and, make any sense. And but his wife's around, right? Yeah, and witnessing a fire. And isn't his daughter home too? <laughs> yeah, everybody's home. Yep. I don't even think they closed the door. <laughs> yeah. Vic says he crashed the plane, which bounced off the power line and through the attic of their home. Earl tests the phone, and it works fine. The fire station arrives and watches the house burn because they don't have enough water pressure to put it out. Vic leaves in Earl's car with Vic's trailer. Back in the house, Earl finds Ramona putting on Elaine's makeup in her bedroom. She Wait, says, what the, what, sorry, what does the water pressure thing have to do with anything? They just can't put out the fire. Right. No, no, I understand that they can't put out the fire, but why is there no water pressure? Why, is, why not? I don't understand what's happening. Why every detail? It might have been a, another impotency joke. Or it might but, just be like, you're just kind of out in the boonies. Like, it's not fully rural, but you're not in the city, so you don't have enough water pressure to put out fires here. Back in the house, Earl finds Ramona putting on Elaine's makeup in her bedroom. She says that Vic took Enid and Elaine with him. Earl acclimates quickly to living here with Ramona and makes dinner plans before cleaning himself up for their date. Of course, it, when he gets downstairs, everyone is back. And it's a very long sequence of getting cleaned up. Yeah, with he's a like, lot of powder. Yeah. He's powdering himself up real good. He's uh, shaven and uh, getting nice and tidy. And then he goes downstairs and, of course, the whole family is back and they're ready to laugh at him again. Surprise! <laughs> See, buddy, I got your breakfast. Hey, Daddy, Vic brought my five most favorite junk food. Elaine, get out the china. We'll inhale this poison on the good stuff. They all present breakfast to eat together and an insert informs us this meal came from Mr. Fong's fast chow. They eat in silence until Earl announces that he wants to move back to the city to liven things up more. Enid agrees, even suggesting that in the city, she could go back to school for Native American studies. Earl assumes they can just sell his house to Vic because he clearly just burned down his own house as a form of insurance fraud. But then Vic meekly admits that not only didn't he have insurance on the place, but he didn't even own it. They were just squatting because Vic knew the previous owner when she died. 
Elaine offers up her room to Vic and Ramona, but Vic suggests the master bedroom might be a better fit. Earl offers to clean up the garage as a compromise, and the weird neighbors leave again. Maybe? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Enid asks Earl for a check for money, and then he panics that Vic has just snuck out with their checkbook. Vic tells Earl exactly where to find it in the house, and Enid confirms it's there, and a negligible total has been stolen to buy Goodwill clothes and Chinese food for breakfast. As an apology for their torture, Earl signs his car over to Vic and Ramona to leave in. What is that happening? Uh, also, is this like a common practice in the 80s or even at all to keep your car's title on you at all times? I don't know, I guess. Don't know. I, I, I don't. I didn't in the 80s. <laughs> Earl and Fam wave goodbye to the parting car as the burnt down house collapses further behind them. Later, Earl watches more TV and Elaine pops in to say she's headed back to school because another girl confessed to whatever she was expelled for. Outside, Perry Greavy, the mechanic's son, drives her away in the tow truck. Enid bounds down the stairs in a Native American costume and says that she has to go meet with her Native American study group, which is just one guy in a Jeep, and she hops in the car with him and they drive away together. Earl goes back inside to watch more TV, again with Aykroyd's voice coming out of it. Now Spruce Hill Park and Spruce Hill Monuments join to offer you a modern concept in funeral aftercare. For the entombment you've always dreamed of, Spruce Hill now introduces an exclusive above-ground display chamber. Someone rings the doorbell incessantly in the background and Earl is hesitant to answer it. It's Vic and Ramona. No, they're not moving back in, but they are taking Earl with them to leave. Earl isn't totally sold, but he sees the transmission tower sparking and then agrees to leave. Vic suggests Earl leave a note for his wife, so he goes inside and takes down the family portrait over the fireplace to smash his head through it. This on portrait TV, looks nothing like them, by no. the way. <laughs> <laughs> on TV, he sees stock footage of buildings being demolished, and then he tosses the television across the room where it explodes, setting fire to the room. Earl gets in Vic's new car, and they leave together. The fire in the siding house is now visible from the outside. I thought for sure Vic and Ramona were going to be gone. When he, when he got outside? Out. Yeah. I was like, That would well, be so much better. I mean, it would be true to form for what they're doing. Right. And the pattern established by the movie, which is that everything is a prank on him where he thinks he's going to get what he wants and he doesn't. Oh, you weren't kidding. You really are leaving a little more than a note. Well, Enid never did like to come home to a dark house. <laughs> The house burns down as the camera backs away and we cut to black. Are they, are the neighbors, like, I don't understand. Are they scammers? Are they, were they never bad guys and it was always misunderstandings or are they insane? Uh, They're weird. My, my interpretation after a long thought <laughs> about this movie. Just more than it deserves. Is they're not human. They are some kind of like imps or demons or monsters because there's so many things that are unexplained how they can appear places and then be in and out they can almost will things to happen like the house isn't on fire and then it is immediately yeah. on fire yeah uh just randomly appearing in the basement shower after you sunk in quicksand yeah or appearing in his bed naked but then being fully dressed and fully make up outside at the front door yeah like there's so many inconsistencies that the only way I can feel that this movie makes logical sense is 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 if that they are some kind of monsters or or like I said like just like uh, evil spirits creatures. 
But yeah. getting into like the Nazi stuff. Because like he's pl- got the the Red Baron plane. He's got the Red Baron plane. He's got the blonde hair, blue eyes. Right. Uh, you know, he, he sees the Nazi book. He pulls it off the shelf to thumb through it. Yeah. The, and he's speaking German to the dog. Yep. Um, there's all these weird little things like that that are in Remember there. the last time we had someone speaking German to a dog? Oh, uh, the boys in Brazil. The boys, boys of Brazil. Boys from Brazil. Yeah. Boys, boys to Brazil. <laughs> My favorite boy fan. Yeah, boys, boys to, to Brazil. It's <laughs> a Nazi boy band. <laughs> but but that's the only way I could think of this movie. Like it's like they that like that was like, yeah, that's the only explanation. I don't think it I don't I don't think they're magic. I don't think they're aliens. I think, I think they're just fucking weird. I think they just screwed the script up enough that they can't explain anything. Let's talk about happened. some important changes from the book. Like I already said, there's a couple moments where uh Earl is clearly amused by their hijinks and the, the weird things that they're doing and it makes a little bit more sense that he might like to keep them around because it's more of a game in the book uh like i said the vic character is named harry uh the age difference is a is a wider margin which they try to you know gray his sideburns a little bit to indicate that belushi is an older man but they're supposed to be like 20 or 30 years younger oh that the neighbors are supposed to be younger yeah okay and that's about it Everything else is almost exactly the same until the last three pages of the book. Yeah, huh. doesn't Earl die in the book? Right. So at the very end, uh, basically everything is the story. Everything is the exact same right up until his wife and his daughter leave. And then Vic and Ramona come back. They knock on the door and they say, hey, we want you to come with us. And he says, okay, I'll come with you. But no one ever says, go back inside and leave a note for your wife. So he doesn't burn down his house mm-hmm. and then he gets in the car with them and then he has a stroke and dies in the back seat while they're driving down the road away from the house. That's the end of the book. That's weird. And I don't know if the point is just supposed to be like, he finally, they He's finally free. didn't pull the rug out from under him. They gave him the one thing he wanted so he can't possibly get to experience it. Mm-hmm. So we oh. have to kill him. Oh, okay. Sure. I see. Uh, had they kept that ending, it would have been much stranger to have that ending and then have Belushi die. Well, that's definitely shortly. the way that the original cut went. So people saw it with that ending on it. And all the test screenings said, he's too passive. He's letting Aykroyd run all over him. He's a maniac. We've seen him be a maniac in, in literally everything he's done except for Continental Divide so far. So he needs to get comeuppance he needs to do something crazy and violent and angry and get revenge on someone and they decided that he would get revenge on enid which is like a Mm non-character and so he goes inside and he throws a television because it's like oh exploding televisions you know times square it's like that's the ultimate anti-materialism i threw a television and then he burns down his own house to get back at her like she's ever gonna fucking come back She's she went she moved in with that Native American guy. She's not coming back to this neighborhood, and and that's the end of the story. And then he go, and he goes away because they wanted Belushi to have a happy ending. They didn't want him to die. Movie is so bizarre. It's really weird, but it's not Larry Gelbert's fault because it's very true to the book. But like, why was there a bidding war over the book? That's I so don't bizarre. know. This is <laughs> yeah, not a that's... fun book. I read it. It's not a. Fu- it's not an interesting book. It's not a book that deserved a bidding war, let alone an adaptation. But again, as a play, 
I think it could be a little bit more fun and interesting. Maybe, maybe. But but I was I was expecting because Gilbert was so mad about how the movie turned out that it must be night and day from the material that he was adapting. And it's not. It feels like Avildsen tried too hard mm-hmm. to stick to the story of the book yeah. because he was like, there was a bidding war for some reason. It's like, you were half of the bidding war. You explain <laughs> it. Why did you think this was so great? I just didn't want them to have it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't put I it past I played myself. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, there's, it really doesn't make any sense that this was so huge. And then it made money. But, I mean, you explain it made, why. It made money because of their trick. Yeah. But, I mean, the reviews were terrible. I, I mean, it was no one had any misgivings about it. They, they knew this was a bad movie. Everybody involved hated it by the time it came out. But, uh, and I'm probably giving away too much here, is I didn't hate it. Um, it's a thumbs down. Yes, Don't get me wrong. Sure. It is thumbs a thumbs down. down. But it's a thumbs down in which, like, I feel like I would watch this and nothing but trouble. Um, yeah, I mean, they're both, like, Dan Aykroyd had too much control over both of them. Yeah, and and I feel like it's like, it's like a, I think nothing but trouble is more watchable. only Because, because it has crazier shit It's in got it. crazier shit. This one doesn't go crazy enough. Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, the it, craziest things that happen, it's like, oh, he crashes an RC plane into his house and it explodes. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't happen on camera. Someone tells you that it happened a second ago. Yeah. It's like, wait, why wouldn't the only interesting thing happen on camera? And they needed they needed to do more stuff with the houses as the characters. Sure, yeah. Uh, if you're going to give them eyes, then they need to. we need to see stuff happen. Because there's only one time where, like, Belushi's house is actually looking over at Vic's house. Yeah. Like, cause like they have like these weird, like circular yeah. shades. And, and, and I think the eyes on the, the house with the white siding are kind of like squinted, like a little bit yeah. like they're suspicious of the other house. Yeah. Um, I, I needed more of that. Uh, but yeah, like I watching this movie, I was just so puzzled. Like I wanted to figure it out. Yeah. I think neighbors is to the burbs as John Belushi is to Chris Farley, which is just like. It came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. It was a little more polished and a hundred million times funnier. <laughs> but yeah, thumbs down, Jess. Oh yeah, thumbs down. Uh, what are we thinking, letterboxed for this one? Um, I wasn't forgiving of it, Richard, as as you seem to be. Um, <laughs> I put it at one fifty one. It's below Hard Country, but above Condor Man. That's pretty good. What do you got, Richard? Uh, I have it at one twenty one. Uh, which puts it below Silence of the North, but above Shock Treatment. Okay. Um, I have it in 170, which is Oof. just under Modern Problems and just above Smoky Bites the Dust. Yeah, I, I really didn't enjoy watching this one because it's just super incompetent. I, I honestly, I am less judgmental of the film having read the book now because mm. I know that this feels exactly like the book did. It's a faithful adaptation. I just don't know why. <laughs> um, but I do think that the only thing they changed, they made worse because it, he definitely should have died at the end of this because I hated every character. So at least one of them should have died. Our director here was John G. Avildsen. Like I said, he has an Oscar for directing Rocky. He also directed Karate Kid and the sequels for both films. <laughs> and yet the one punch in this movie is completely flubbed. Uh, he also edited most of the films that he directed, but not Rocky or this. 
He even DP'd on a handful of his own films. Last season, we saw his work directing The Formula, which I'm pretty sure he tried to take his name off of, and the studio was like, mm-hmm. nah, no, nah, you did nah. this. <laughs> Novelist Thomas Berger, uh, he also wrote the novels adapted into Little Big Man, The Feud, and Meeting Evil. So the guy who wrote Little Big Man wrote Neighbors? Yeah, the, the that, novels of both. That's yeah, so strange. Whoa. Really? Yeah, very strange. Huh. The screenwriter was Larry Gelbart. He developed MASH for TV. He also wrote the screenplays for Oh God, Movie Movie, and last season Rough Cut. He's back next season with Tootsie and later Blame It on Rio and the Bedazzled remake, all of which I like. Yeah, it's like it's like it's 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 all up yeah. from that direction. I mean, the music. Oh, sorry. I mean, like Tootsie's the higher mark, right? I feel, yeah. Than to Bedazzled or Blame It on Rio. Uh, but... Bedazzled is the best one of them. <laughs> specifically the, the one where Brendan Fraser is like a Colombian drug lord and realizes <laughs> in the subtitles that he's speaking Spanish. Raul. <laughs> uh, the music here came from Bill Conti. Amusingly, one of his first music department credits was for a movie called Brothers Blue. He has composer credits on Harry and Tonto, Next Stop Greenwich Village, most famously Rocky, and so far on the show, Gloria, Private Benjamin, The Formula, For Your Eyes Only, Victory, and Carbon Copy, which I think we also had problems with the Carbon Copy score. Later, he scored The Right Stuff, The Karate Kid, Masters of the Universe, Baby Boom, Broadcast News, and Rookie of the Year. The cinematographer here was Gerald Hirschfeld. He was the DP of Failsafe, Doc, and Young Frankenstein before this. Next season, he lights My Favorite Year, and later, Mel Brooks' vehicle, To Be or Not To Be. Oh, man, Failsafe was amazingly shot. Yeah. The editor here was Jane Curson. She had previously cut only Don't Go in the House, and after this, Karate Kid 2, Beetlejuice, Hot Shots, and Monster. John Belushi played Earl Keese. Bizarrely, Avelton's first choice for this part was Rodney Dangerfield. Hmm. Oh, no. Terrible, terrible choice, but more age-appropriate. Obviously, Belushi was a member of the original SNL cast. Before Neighbors, he had appeared in two flops for Spielberg, 1941, and more recently, the Lawrence Kasdan-written Continental Divide, and two bona fide blockbusters, Animal House and Blues Brothers. His first feature credit was in the relatively unknown animated film Tarzoon, Shame of the Jungle with Bill Murray in 75. He also showed up in Jack Nicholson's Going South, but this would be his final film. After Neighbors, Belushi was trying to get a movie made called Noble Rot, It was originally called Sweet Deception, and him and Don Novello were rewriting it and made it very much the story of John Belushi's personal life, like it was based on him as a character. Mm. But it also dealt with, like, wine country and all this other stuff. Terrible script. They were both just super coked up the whole time, and it was a mess. And the studio hated it, but because his movies had been making money for a while, he had a pay-or-play deal with Paramount, and... They really didn't want to make the movie, but they couldn't say no. So instead, they tried to sell him on starring in a different movie, mm-hmm. which was written by John Hughes, and it was called National Lampoon's The Joy of Sex, which was a comedic adaptation of the actual novel The Joy of Sex. Hmm. And it was supposed to be directed by Penny Marshall, but that obviously fell apart when he passed away. Catherine Walker played Enid Keese. She previously appeared in Slapshot and Claudia Wheel's Girlfriends. Later, she shows up in Daryl. She was also the girlfriend of National Lampoon founder Doug Kenny at the time of his recent passing. Kathy Moriarty played Ramona. She made her big screen debut last year in Raging Bull and landed an Oscar nom right out of the gate. She plays Sylvester's mom in Kindergarten Cop. 
Patty Lepresti in Analyze That, and Mary Brown in But I'm a Cheerleader. She sort of reunites with Dan Aykroyd in Casper, where he shows up in a cameo as Ghostbuster Ray Stance. Uh, Kathy Moriarty in this film, one, is amazingly gorgeous, but she's kind of trying to lay on like this like sultry like tone this whole movie yeah but where where she always shines for me is when she gets really agitated or is yelling because that's like when i get her from casper yeah she's angry. <laughs> yeah and and you can hear her there's a couple of scenes where she's yelling and she just slips into that more deep down harsh screamy voice and i was like there she is yeah that's the kathy i love she was wasted in this movie it's such a shame In that same sequence from Casper with Dan Aykroyd, Father Guido Sarducci is one of the other exorcists trying to get the ghost out of the house. Mm -hmm. And that's Don Novello, who was co-writing Noble Rot with Belushi at the time of his death. Dan Aykroyd plays Vic. He's another SNL original. He wrote and starred in Blues Brothers, Coneheads, Ghostbusters, and Spies Like Us. He appeared with Belushi in 1941. And then after this, he stars in Dr. Detroit, Trading Spaces, A Small Part in Temple of Doom, Dragnet, The Great Outdoors, Caddyshack 2, My Stepmother's an Alien, My Girl, Tommy Boy, Gross Point Blank, and the reviled Blues Brothers 2000, among many other titles. Tim Kazarinski played Pa Greavy. He was another SNL cast member. He appeared previously on the pod for My Bodyguard, Somewhere in Time, and Continental Divide for basically background characters with no lines. And he's actually two years younger than the man playing his son in this film. <laughs> Tino and Sana played Perry Greavy. He shows up as a studio guard in Three Amigos and Tiny the Iceman in Oscar. He went on to an enviable career in voice work, including the character of Dr. Reginald Bushroot on Darkwing Duck. Yeah. He's Uncle Ted on Bobby's World, Barf on the Spaceballs animated series, Pig the Pig on Back at the Barnyard, and most recently, Mr. Grouper on Bubble Guppies. Bizarrely, though, he reprises this role of Perry Greavy in an episode of Camp Candy. Oh. <laughs> but he's credited as Perry Greavy, hmm. which is the, the mechanic's son slash tow truck driver. Because that's like, there's no connection. Because that's no, like John I mean, Candy's uh, Second City. Yeah. I mean, Second City obviously has a lot of connections because Belushi was also Second City. P.L. Brown played police officer number one. After this, he has appeared recently in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Blackish, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Space Force, and more recently as the voice of a doorman in Pixar's Elemental. Henry Judd Baker played police officer number two. We saw him last as another cop in Cruising. Later, he's Jet in After Hours and Oscar in The Money Pit. Lauren Marie Taylor played Elaine Keese. She was recently Vicky in Friday the 13th Part 2, the one with the brown undies that was hitting on wheelchair guy. And next season, she appears as Sheila Robinson in slasher Girls Night Out. Bernie Friedman played additional fireman. He was Abe in Blood Rage. That's the last of the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Neighbors. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Andrew Chilton. As a $5 patron of the show, Andrew now has access to 45 full-size 70s reviews and a hand in choosing next month's film. For November of 1973, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following five titles. Ash Wednesday. Larry Pierce's drama about a middle-aged woman and her affairs with plastic surgery and a younger man. It stars Elizabeth Taylor, Henry Fonda, and Helmut Berger. Breezy, Clint Eastwood's romantic drama about the relationship between a grumpy old man and a much younger hitchhiker. It stars William Holden, Kay Lenz, and Roger C. Carmel. 
Horror Express, Eugenio Martin's sci-fi horror film about a train transporting a prehistoric ape hosting an ageless parasite. It stars Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Alberto de Mendoza. Disney's Robin Hood, Wolfgang Reitherman's animated family film that reimagines the English folktale of Robin Hood, played out by a cast of anthropomorphic animals. It stars Peter Ustinov, Phil Harris, Brian Bedford, Roger Miller, and Pat Buttram. And Westworld. Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park precursor about an amusement park set in the Old West and populated by realistic human androids until something goes terribly wrong. It stars Yul Brenner, Richard Benjamin, and James Brolin, each of which celebrate their 50th anniversaries in the month of November. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Sharky's Machine, which IMDb describes like so. Tom Sharky is demoted to vice after a bust goes terribly wrong, and he and his team stumble across a mob murder tied to prostitution and government. We leave you now with the trailer for Sharky's Machine. Orion Pictures presents Burt Reynolds in Sharky's Machine. If you don't get out now, I'm going to have to call the police. I am the police. Sharky, vice. They were just street cops until they teamed up with Sharky and became Sharky's Machine. Seven ladies. One's got her hooks into Hodgkins, and that's the one the department won't let us touch on. Doesn't that tell you anything? A thousand bucks a night. Is that right? Is that what they get? I want to watch you. Found the clock. Who? Domino with an E. Domino. It's a waste. You, busting hookers. The last casualty they had in Vice was a suicide. <laughs> what the hell are we doing? Well, we're here to arrest souls that might be offering to perform sexual acts for money. The man with the smiling eyes. Sharky. Vice. Low-life creep. Even if there is one guy squeezing his town, he's too high to reach. Great reputation here. Slave trade. Buy him. Kidnap them, then they break them down. Drugs, rape, whatever the hell it takes, then they sell them. Who is that? Tim and his brother, Albert Spirelli. You're an outcast about to lose that badge of yours. You're a strange guy, Shucky. Yeah, that's what everybody says. You know you got a big communication problem here, Sharky. He wants you dead. Then I am dead. Where is Domino? You should have just brought the girl in. Nobody leans on Shucky's machine.